0: Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So um, it's my privilege this morning to share with you and think through a little bit more around this idea of we can eat and drink. Uh, I like putting the word together in there uh, because I can eat and drink by myself. I'm sure you all can. This is all about us eating and drinking together. And we're looking at this whole idea of of neighboring and hospitality. So it's great to jump into the word this morning. A question I have for you and for myself this morning is, is there an answer for a divided world? As we look at the world at the moment, uh, you might think, man, it seems so at the moment, so complex and so divided what can we possibly do? So the other night, Kate and I were on a Zoom call, but it wasn't a Zoom call just to someone close by. It was um, someone in Colorado, Kate's brother, we're on the phone, well, on the, on the Zoom uh, to Colorado. And we're, we're talking to her brother and wife about life. And all of a sudden, we had this feeling of like, we wish we could be there but we know geographically at the moment we can't really, well, not unless we want to go into quarantine a few times and, you, and a two-week trip becomes a six-week trip. We don't want to do that. Uh, and it's funny that over this COVID time, it feels like it's really easy to feel divided. Uh, you probably used to seeing a whole bunch more people in here that you like connecting with, but today we can't. Uh, and we can feel very geographically divided or politically divided I was reading an article um, talking about that since social media has come onto the scene about 2009, that's when it really started to rise, that we've seen this idea of the world being more politically divided than than ever before. The premise of the article was that 7% on the extreme left and 7% of people on the extreme right have become more vocal around social media and the the remaining 86% of people have become a lot quieter. So it can feel like at the moment that our world is politically more divided than what it ever has been, or perhaps wealth division. I, I read something the other day saying that with COVID, COVID has seen one of the greatest transfers of wealth in the history of the planet as people have moved from buying locally to, to moving towards a few big companies like Amazon. And as we think about racially and morally, and demographically and so on, it seems like we're living in a world that is quite divided and complexly so. It seems like the world is really complexly divided at the moment to the point by which sometimes I look at the world and I think, I really don't know what I would do if I was in charge. Thank the Lord I'm not. But if you've ever felt like, what is the answer for a divided world? A couple of years ago, when I was in a social working job, we went and did some in-service training around dealing with complex mental health needs, particularly personality disorders. And one thing that the trainer said to us that which stuck with me was that often we think that complex problems need complex solutions, but often what happens in life, and it's particularly with complex mental health needs, is that one simple solution can unlock a very complex problem. And as we think about how divided our world is in so many different ways and how complex that is, we sort of, I sometimes feel like, man, I've got to throw my arms up in the air because I don't know what to do. But Jesus steps into that complexity and he says, look, if you can implement this one simple thing, you can unlock some of the division that is in the world and bring about unity and incredible loving your neighbour. So this morning we're going to jump into a passage particularly that you may have heard before. If you're first time ever at church and never uh, heard this story, then I, I'm very excited about sharing it with you this morning. But for some of us who have been in church since we were little kids, you have probably heard this story many times and it's easy for us to sort of be like, yeah, I know the punchline, I know what happens. But I really feel God wants to look at, give us fresh eyes this morning to look at this passage and, and see where it takes us around this whole idea of neighbouring and hospitality. So if you've got an app or a Bible with you, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. We're going to work our way through this this morning. And my great hope and prayer this morning is that God will take something complex and help us unlock that through a simple change in how we think about this and what we do. Verse 25, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus teacher he asked what must i do to inherit eternal life now it's notice notice here that the question is all set to trap jesus or it's all about to absolve the person who's asking he's trying to do something he's a lawyer and he's trying to do something to get himself off the hook jesus says what is written in the law how do you read it it's a great way to answer is actually well jesus turns it back to the expert and says well what do you say and he answered love the lord your god with all your heart and all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbour as yourself. Now, this is just perfect theory, absolutely perfect theory. Because in the Old Testament, this is something that came from Deuteronomy, and it's actually what uh, good Jewish people would recite three times three times a day as part of their prayers, and it was perfect. But Jesus says, replied to him, "You have answered perfectly. Your theory is." beautiful. If it was an exam around theory, you're 100%. Jesus replied. But he said, do this and you will live. All of a sudden, Jesus moves it from perfect theory, saying, look, you've got it. Your answer's 100% right. Now go do it. I want to see what it looks like in practice. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? He's looking as a good lawyer would, he's looking for a loophole. Uh, And at this point, he's sounding a lot like me. And I wouldn't say look like you, but like me, always looking for a loophole. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. So a little bit of context for this verse here. Jericho, Jerusalem, about 30 kilometers apart from each other, but are not the same when it comes to topography. So there was a height difference. Jerusalem was up high. Jericho was down low, about 1,100 meters. So the road that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho was a winding, dangerous, downward path. And it was actually called the Way of Blood. In fact, the people of the day were so used to hearing about how treacherous this road was, for the original hearers of this story, they might have thought to themselves, we're not listening to a parable at this stage. We're actually listening to an account of something that's happened because they all would have been able to recall a time they knew of somebody who was traveling the road from Jerusalem down to Jericho and something happened to them. It was called the Way of Blood. So that's the setting for this story that Jesus is telling. And the important thing to remember here is that somebody was attacked by robbers and stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. We need a hero. In the story and here comes the hero. A priest happening to go down by the side of the same road. He saw the man and he passed on the other side. To those who are listening, they're like, man, the priest is a hero. He's the guy in the temple that we look to. We He understands the Torah. He, he directs our spiritual life. He If anyone's going to be the hero, the priest is going to be the hero, but he sort of steps to the side and goes past and goes down. Well, we still need a hero. So here comes a Levite. So too a Levite. Levites were professional worshippers. They are in the temple paid by the tithes and offerings so that they would uh, worship God 24-7. So the Levite too, when he came to that place, he saw him and passed on the other side of the road. So what would often happen is that the priests and the Levites would actually live in Jericho and work at the temple in Jerusalem. And they'd be on shift for, say, two weeks. So they would often uh, walk this way to get to work and then walk home to get home. So it's actually the priest and the Levite are probably uh, clocking off their shift. They've been their professional God people for those two weeks and they're heading home to Jericho. They would have had with them their wages. But their wages wasn't a bag of coins. Their wages was they got a percentage from the tithes of grain and animal offerings that came into the temple. So they're bringing their wages home to their family and they knew from Leviticus law that they could not let that food go anywhere near somebody who was bleeding and broken because it would defile their wages. So it's understandable that they walked past But for those who are listening, they're expecting a twist at this point because whenever you talked about the hierarchy in the temple, it was always priest, Levite, and then Jewish lay person. So for the people who are listening to this story, they are fully ready for Jesus to tell a story about the underdog, about the working class, about the stick it to the man type thing. So here comes the twist in the plot as the listeners are expecting Jesus to talk about a Jewish layperson. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. For the listeners of this story, at this point, they are horrified because Jesus dares to make the hero of the story a Samaritan. Now, back story, if, if the first, today's the first time you've ever heard the word Samaritan, uh, and you might think it's just another group of people. They weren't just another group of people. The Jews and the Samaritans really hated each other. And for 700 years, they hated each other. When, um, when the northern kingdoms got taken into exile, uh, they um, went to Assyria. And instead of not intermarrying with the Assyrians, they intermarried. And that was the line of the Samaritans. Well, the bottom kingdoms, when they got taken into exile into Babylon, they were told not to intermarry. So they felt like they had been pure. So when they all come back to Israel, the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other because one group intermarried with the Assyrians and the other group kept themselves pure and didn't intermarry. And so for 700 years, they've hated each other. And Jesus makes the hero of the story the very people that the Jewish people could not stand. But the Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was and he saw him and took pity on him. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, very expensive, and he put a man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, about two days' wages for a laborer, and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have had. Jesus poses this question to them. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robber? The expert of law who's still standing there listening to the story, he replies, the one who had mercy on him. He couldn't even bring himself to say his name. The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. It's a powerful story when you think about uh, the racial tension and and the class tension that sits behind that story. But Jesus does two really important things with this idea of neighbor. Two really important things. The first thing he does is he universalizes this idea of neighbor. In other words, what he says is, Anyone who is in need is actually your neighbor. It doesn't matter where you find them. It doesn't matter politically what they think. It doesn't matter demographically whether they're old or whether they're young. It doesn't matter what race they are, how they identify themselves. It doesn't matter who they are, that everyone is a neighbor, even to the person whose name you can't say. That's a powerful thing, even to the person whose name you can't say. And if you've ever been wounded by somebody If you've ever had somebody who so wounded your heart, there are times where you're just like, I cannot say even their name. And Jesus says, even the person who has wounded you, and you can't even say their name, they are a neighbor to you. The danger, of course, of thinking metaphorically around a neighbor like this is that Sometimes in our efforts to love everyone and treat everyone as a neighbor, we actually end up loving no one. It becomes too vague. Oh, I love the whole world. Do you? Because, man, that is one hard thing to love the whole world. What actually happens is we reduce the concept of love from something tangible to something like, well, I'm just going to have warm and fuzzy thoughts to the whole world and try to be tolerant towards people. And it's so easy. And that's the danger that we just smile, be nice, and be tolerant because we actually reduce the concept of love because it's so hard to think about loving everyone as our neighbor. So that's what Jesus does. He universalizes this idea of neighbor to everyone. The second thing that Jesus does, he also particularizes neighbor as well. He takes this idea of neighbor away from just being this sort of concept of out there, it's everyone, it's big, it's almost intangible. And he brings it down to be something really quite particular. And he talks about this idea of a literal meaning of neighbor, i.e. the person on your left or the person on your right. And this, I think, is probably more dangerous than the idea of the universal neighbor. The metaphorical meaning is quite safe. But if I was to say to you this morning that actually Jesus, when he's talking in this passage, is actually talking about the person who lives on your left and your right in your suburb. That becomes a little bit confronting because I can, I can live with this idea of smiling and being kind and sometimes letting people in in the traffic and you know not abusing anyone much. But when it comes to this idea that Jesus put me in a suburb and put me in a street, and put me in a house in order that I would be uh, a radical expression of hospitality to my neighbors. So what if Jesus did actually mean your actual neighbor? Our neighborhoods are quite interesting things in the Western world. Remember when I was doing social work, our Marxist lecture, would talk about Karl Marx and how um, our suburbs are deliberately divided in such a way as that if, if uh, so for capitalists want us to have our suburbs in such a way that so you buy a mower and you buy a mower and you buy a mower and you, you never ask each other for each other's mower. You just, everybody buys, everybody buys. And, and although, uh, you know, it's got a bit of weight to it, the thing that I remembered from this that stands out is that our suburbs are constructed in such a way that it is quite hard sometimes to become a good neighbour to your neighbour. There's some relational barriers, and there's also sometimes some physical barriers. Sometimes our fences are short, and sometimes our fences are walls. Because what happens in our own house sometimes is that we don't think of our our homes as an outpost for the gospel, we think about them as a retreat. So imagine for a moment your three neighbors. Just think about the people over the left hand fence, think about the people over the right hand fence. And think about the people across the road. Now, you guys can't think about across the road. You might have a reserve across the road. Maybe think about the people at the back. Maybe if you're in your units, you're thinking about the people that are left and right and across the hallway. But this is what Jesus is on about, this idea that just imagine their face in your mind at this moment. And what Jesus is saying to us is that loving your neighbour is loving that face. And that is incredibly practical but incredibly confronting. It is a confronting thing. But Jesus also goes on in this, uh, as Luke constructs his gospel, he, he tells this story about the Samaritan who becomes the hero of uh, caring for the neighbour. But in the, in the original text, um, it's all in the Greek letters, they're all capital, and there's no pronunciation, there's no um, not pronunciation, of course there's pronunciation, um, punctuation. There's no punctuation. It's just line after line of capital Greek letters. And, and Luke goes straight into this other story. The next story is Martha and Mary. Jesus uh, takes this concept of going on a road, the road to Jerusalem and Jericho, and he actually walks on a road in this next chapter. And, and a woman becomes the hero of the story. And she becomes a hero because she shows radical hospitality so Luke, in his thinking, these stories are so linked together. This whole idea of neighbouring, radical neighbouring, and hospitality become this one thing. So Jesus, uh, Jesus, and Luke link these stories together. And I guess the question they're asking us this morning is this: What if we recaptured our house, our houses, our households as outposts for the gospels instead of places where we retreat and try to keep the world out? Now, don't get me wrong i've got my favorite spot in the house it's I've got my lounge i've got my favorite cushion like i i don't like it when someone uses my cushion. I really don't <laughs> sound like an old man. <laughs> what I really want is a recliner, but anyway i'm not allowed ever i'm not allowed to have a recliner yet no i've been banned i've been banned from having a recliner yet. The day will come but i've got my comfy lounge and and it's where I watch uh, football and it's where i enjoy and relax, you know. So I've got this little retreat. But what if, and I think it's okay to have a place you relax, but what if my household wasn't just a primarily about a place where I get away from the world, but so much becomes primarily about a place where the kingdom of God breaks into my suburb because I allow God to use my place as an outpost for radical hospitality. What would it look like? It would look a lot more like the gospel. <laughs> And it looked more like what Jesus had in mind when he talked about this sort of thing. When we were in Bondo Junction, God sent us down there to plant a church and it's the second highest dense population part of Australia. There's people everywhere. But when I think about that, there was like, you know, 60,000 people within a two kilometre radius of of our place. And I think about that and I think that's too big for me. And so, we were there in the suburb, but I had to think, where's God sent me on mission? I've got to think about my street. And then when I thought about my street, I think that's still pretty big. God, who am I mission to? And then there was my neighbours. So we spent a lot of time in our church planning days thinking like we were missionaries in a street and that God had called us to. And so uh, I sat on the veranda of um, Matt, who lived three doors up, uh, just after his wife had left him for another guy as he's crying. And what a privilege to be in people's brokenness like that. We uh, we knew most of the people around us and and had quite a few opportunities to invite them to church. But on our right-hand side was Wendy and her family. And they were Jewish and had been Jewish for many generations. And when she found out that we were church planners and Christians, the first thing she said to us is, don't try and convert me, uh, <laughs> which... Um, when I think back now is a great thing someone can say about your life. Don't try and convert me. It means that you're on the move for the gospel. Anyway, uh, that was not my style anyway. But what, it was amazing what happened over the next couple of years as we uh, chatted over the fence and we started to share meals with them. They would come um, and have main course in our house and we'd go around to their house and have dessert. And we did this quite a few times. And the kids would play with each other. The, the interesting thing, and they invited us to their son's bar mitzvah. Have you, I don't know if you've ever been to a bar mitzvah. It was great, great fun going to a bar mitzvah. But something happened around radical hospitality to the point where even though she said, don't try and convert me, the gospel started to just flow out of our lives. And we had so many conversations around what the Old Testament says about God And the New Testament says about God to the point where they even joined us. We used to do our Christmas service on our front lawn because we just felt like that was a great way to invite people. So we would do our Christmas carols. And at one time I said, look, I know you're Jewish, but would you like to come and share in our Christmas carols? And she said, of course, I'd like to come. But the thing that sticks with me right now is that because we were church planning, I had this missionary mindset that feels like somehow it's so hard to access. Now I'm living in the suburbs of Newcastle. And it feels like, hmm, I'm just, what's happening here? And I think God wants me to recapture this idea of being a missionary in the suburbs of Newcastle. And I think he wants us all to. It's so easy to think about the missionaries of the people out there, but he actually wants us to be the outposts for the gospel in a radical hospitality setting and situation. Because it's something that we can all do. We sometimes forget what it's like be lonely and in need of the gospel and desperate for someone to reach out because we're in a a vibrant community. We see people regularly. We're in home groups, connect groups. We come to events. We can forget what it is to be desperately lonely and needing someone to reach out. God has given you a table. He's given me a table. In fact, often uh, he's given us a front fence. Often my front fence and my side fence are even more effective than my table. How do we use, how do we use it? How do we use the table? How do we use the front fence that God has given you? Imagine for a moment a street party. Imagine for a moment a community porch. We've got people in this church who, um, who they rebuilt their porch the veranda for the very purpose that people might wander along and come and sit up and have a drink with them and, 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 and have hospitality with them. Imagine a shared garden. Imagine study hour. Imagine backyard cricket. All of these uh, activities can become highly gospel-focused activities as we radically take this idea of who is my neighbor, and it's not just something that's out there. It's not just people who are out there, but it becomes the very people that we live next to, our left and our right. I want to just leave this thought with you today. As I talk about your neighbour and as I say the person to your left or to your right, the actual outworking of the gospel, the outworking of that ancient prayer that the Jewish people would pray three times a day, the actual outworking of that is you thinking of that face of your neighbour and saying, let me be an instrument of love and hospitality to that face can you stand with me right now? And I'm just going to pray. I'm going to pray for us all this morning that God would give us a revelation around this idea of radical hospitality and neighbouring, that, uh, that we would be enthused once again to use our what we have, our front fence, our side fence, our table, our backyard, whatever it is you've got, to be a radical instrument of God's grace to a community. Father, I just pray for every person right now who can hear my voice. Father, give us a revelation around this idea that you are not just wanting us to think about the universal neighbour, but you're wanting us to think about the literal neighbour and that you want to see the gospel go powerfully into uh, our suburbs, our streets, our clusters, our cul-de-sacs, our avenues. Father, help us to shake off this idea that my home is a castle, a fortress, a retreat. And Father, we offer ourselves to you today. We offer our our lounge rooms. We offer our tables. We offer our front gardens and say, God, would you reach the world through my table, through my fence, through my garden, through my porch? In Jesus' name, amen.